January 2007, in one of the subway stations of Washington, D.C., a shabby-looking young musician took up a spot against the wall near a trash can, pulled out his violin, and he put his case out on the ground to collect tips, and he began to play. Now, that's not a surprising sight to see in the larger metropolitan areas of the nation, street musicians playing as the masses pass by to try to earn a buck. Uh, But this isn't your average street musician. Uh, This is actually Joshua Bell. He's arguably the greatest violinist of our generation. Uh, He, when he performs, commands a salary of about $1,000 a minute as he plays. Uh, And he's not playing just any piece, he's playing Bach's Chaconne, arguably the most technically difficult and beautiful piece written for the violin. He'd played it a couple nights before this at Boston Symphony Hall, where the average ticket price was a hundred bucks a pop. And he's not playing it on any old violin. That's a $3.5 million Stradivarius he's playing. Okay, so you have one of the greatest musicians in the world, playing one of the greatest compositions ever written on one of the most expensive instruments ever made. What response do you think he got? As he played that piece, 1,097 people passed him by. How many do you think stopped, listened, and gave him a tip? 20. 20 out of almost 1,100 people. The rest didn't stop. They didn't listen. They passed them on by. You can actually go on YouTube and watch the subway security footage of this experiment they did. 1,077 people just walk on by. They don't stop. They don't listen. They don't even look at him. They don't even notice one of the best musicians in the world right there in their presence for free. They just pass on by. Would you have done the same? Would I have done the same? I, I like to think that I wouldn't. I like to think of myself as someone who would recognize true greatness when it's in my presence, but the statistics are not in my favor. 20 out of 1,097. I'm probably with the other group. Just pass on by. That's a little bit tragic, isn't it? We, we human beings, we don't notice true greatness when it's standing right in our presence. We don't notice true greatness because we don't expect it in a subway dressed like that. We miss true greatness because we just look at the externals. We focus on the appearance of things and we miss the true greatness inside. That's the tragedy of our passage this morning. Our passage this morning as we jump back into the book of Isaiah is is actually about the uh, most regrettable case of missed greatness in all of human history. You can turn to Isaiah 53. We're actually going to start back at the end of 52. This is the last of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. We've been studying these for a couple weeks now. This is Isaiah's revelation about God's ideal servant, his Messiah, who would lead the world back to God, who would bring justice, who would make all things right all throughout the planet. Isaiah has a great deal to say about this ideal servant, uh, this Messiah of God. He begins, look at chapter 52, verse 13. He begins with, with what we might expect him to begin with. Verse 13, this is actually the words of God through Isaiah. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Uh, My servant will prosper. Literally, my servant will be exceedingly wise. He will be so wise that everything he does will be a success. He will be a complete success in life. As a result, the last part of the verse, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That threefold repetition about the exaltation of the servant, interestingly, uh, those phrases are used frequently by Isaiah, but always of God. 
He's saying that this ideal servant deserves the glory that belongs to God alone. That's a hint. He's going to be more than just a man. It's going to be something not ordinary about him. He's going to be high and exalted and lifted up. That's not really a surprise to us. We're talking about God's Messiah, his chosen servant, the exalted king who would bring perfect justice to the entire earth. We expect him to be high and lifted up and exalted. That's no surprise. The rest of the passage is. Turns very surprising in the next verse. Isaiah wants us to understand that this man who would be so high, so exalted, so lifted up, will not appear that way to us. Rather than appearing like a glorious man, a man who, who has the glory of God upon him, when the servant comes to earth, to us he will appear to be a tragic loser. As Isaiah writes 500 years before the arrival of Christ, he wants us to understand when Christ arrives, he will look to us like a tragic loser. His life, rather than being characterized by honor and glory, will be just the opposite. It will be characterized by suffering. That's really the key idea of our passage this morning. This passage is often called the the song of the suffering servant because it is all about his suffering. Isaiah wants us to understand that the Messiah, the servant, when he arrives, he will live a life of shocking suffering. Look with me starting in verse 14. I'm going to make a a little modification here as I read, a little better translation. Just as many were astonished at you, my servant, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. That word astonished, it means means to to shudder. Uh, it, It means to be appalled at someone. As the world looks at the servant, as they see Jesus when he comes to earth, they're going to shudder. They're going to be appalled. Why? Because his form will be more marred than any man. The the idea of the Hebrew there is he will be so disfigured. He will be so ruined by what he experiences in life that we won't even recognize him as human anymore. He won't even look like a human being because of his sufferings. Now, we can't read that verse and and not think about Jesus' scourging. When Rome convicted him and sentenced him to be crucified as, as in accordance with Roman law, first thing that happens, he's scourged. That's where he's tied to, to restraints and they pull out a whip that has either lead balls or pieces of bone embedded in the end of it. And he's beaten all down his back, in his thighs, in his legs. And as those, those pieces of shrapnel hit him, they don't just beat him, they don't just bruise him, they actually bite into the flesh and tear it as they come down. So his whole backside would be ripped open, blood going all the way to his feet. Many prisoners died just from the scourging. When it would be finished, uh, he wouldn't even look human anymore. He would look like a, a bloody pulp, just, just a, a bloody piece of meat. And Isaiah's point is is the world looks at this bloody pulp of a man, this man disfigured, marred beyond any human being. They will ask, how can this be God's servant? How can you call this success in life? Verse 13, that's success? He doesn't even look human anymore. How can this be God's Messiah? That's the point of verse 15. Look with me at 15. I'm going to make another little change here. Uh, Not he will sprinkle, but he will startle. That's really a, a better translation of it. Thus he, my servant, will startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Isaiah's point is as the world, as the kings and leaders of the world, look at God's Messiah, as they look at his servant who is beaten down by suffering, who is marred, who is ripped open, open, they will ask themselves, how could this possibly be God's servant? 
They'll be so shocked. They'll be so stunned that actually they won't be able to say anything. They'll sit there in stunned silence as they wonder, as they marvel over how this could be God's servant. The end of his life will be characterized by shocking suffering. But it's not just the end of his life that will be characterized by suffering. His entire life will be characterized by suffering. Even from the very first days of his life, he will suffer from an unremarkable life. The Messiah, the exalted servant, will not look remarkable to us. Look with me, starting in chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Let's start with verse 2. Isaiah begins with a couple metaphors to describe the servant. He says that the servant will be like a tender shoot. Literally, that's a, a sucker shoot. It's the little shoots of growth that come up from the roots of a tree. They're, they're not what you want. They don't look good. They actually harm the tree. So what do you do to those? You prune them. You, you cut those off. You don't want them. They're undesirable. That's what Jesus would be, undesirable among humanity. Then Isaiah compares him to a root growing out of parched ground. Now, when we think about God's Messiah, God's chosen servant, we think that he's going to be a mighty oak. A noble oak growing beside a mighty river. He's going to be something impressive. No, he's not. He's going to be like a tiny little withered plant growing out of parched soil. The kind of plant that when you see it, you think, I should pull that out because I just should put it out of its misery. Looks pathetic. That's going to be Jesus. His life will look pathetic. If Jesus had gone to high school, I can promise you he would not have been voted most likely to succeed. He would not have been voted most popular. If Jesus went back 10 years later to his high school reunion, chances are no one would remember him. Wait a minute, you you went to our school? I don't remember you at all. Yeah, because he was completely unremarkable. There was nothing special about him. There was nothing memorable about him. That's actually perfectly fulfilled when we looked at the details of Jesus' life. Where is he born? Well, not in a hospital, not even in a house. He's born in a manger. That's like a really ugly, uh, really dirty barn. Uh, it's it's a pretty awful place to be born. That's where he's born and it goes downhill from there. Then he grows up in a, a tiny little backwater town, not Jerusalem, not someplace like that, no Nazareth. It's a tiny little town that no one's heard of. And he's not something great. He's not a, he's not a mighty figure in the town. No, he's just a carpenter. He, he helps people build tables and, and things of that nature. There's nothing remarkable about him. He seems to live an absolutely insignificant life. The world looks at him and thinks, man, what a, what a loser. What are you doing with your life? Not only is he unremarkable in his life, he's unremarkable in his looks. Did you, did you notice that? He would have no stately form. He wouldn't look like a king. He wouldn't look like anybody special. In fact, there would be nothing about his appearance that would be attractive at all. I don't know if you realize, Jesus was not an attractive man. It's interesting. We have four books in our Bible dedicated to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You add it all together and you got about 3,700 verses about Jesus. Guess what you won't find in any of them? A single description of what he looked like. You ever realize that? We have absolutely no record in scripture of what Jesus looked like. We have it of other people. In the Old Testament, King Saul, we're told he stood head and shoulders above the rest. Uh, We're told that King David, he was uh, ruddy in appearance. He had beautiful eyes. He was a handsome man. His son Absalom, we're told that there was no one in all of Israel that could match his beauty and his appearance. But of Jesus... We have silence, absolute silence. Why? Because there's nothing remarkable about how he looked. 
He was not attractive in facial features. He did not have an attractive body. He did not wear attractive clothing. He was not trendy. There wasn't anything attractive about him. Here's a little irony for you. A few years ago, Mel Gibson put together this movie, The Passion of the Christ, and he cast James Caviezel to be Jesus. Uh, Problem is, a couple years later, People Magazine chose James to be one of the sexiest men alive. (laughs) Mel, you chose the wrong guy. I can guarantee Jesus would not have made that list. He wouldn't have been the sexiest man alive than anybody. He was not an attractive man. And what a wake-up call that is for us, living in the midst of an image-obsessed culture, whereas everything is about how you look, how you appear. And here's the creator, the the one and only human being who could actually choose his body because he put it together. He could choose to look any way he wanted to. And when he chose a human body, he chose an unattractive one. He chose to be unattractive. Maybe Jesus thought that good looks was more of a liability in life than a benefit. Just an interesting thing to reflect on. When you look at Jesus' life, Isaiah told us 500 years in advance, he would be utterly unremarkable in every way. Birth, upbringing, his status in society, his looks, utterly unremarkable. As a result, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These are the words of Jesus' contemporaries. They see this man named Jesus claiming to be God's Messiah, God's servant, and they say to one another, who would ever believe that? Who could possibly believe this guy's message that he is God's servant? Who could possibly believe that this is the arm of the Lord? That's Old Testament imagery for the military power of God. It pictures God rolling up his sleeves, taking his weapon and crushing his enemies. And in the Old Testament, we're told the Messiah, the servant, will be God's weapon. He will be the one through whom God conquers his enemies. And Jesus' contemporaries are looking and saying, are are you kidding me? Jesus, you, you think you're the arm of the Lord? You're an insignificant carpenter from a backwater town. You think you're God's weapon against his enemies? How absurd are you? Jesus suffered from an absolutely unremarkable life. He also suffered from what we can only describe as a wretched life, a life absolutely full of wretched pain and suffering. Look at verse three. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. And and pause there for a second. Uh, Sorrows and and grief, the word sorrows, it, it refers to pain. Jesus would live a life full of pain, not just physical pain, but emotional pain, spiritual pain, relational pain. Pain would haunt his life. Uh, he would be a, a man uh, acquainted with grief. That's the idea of illness or sickness. It's, it's not that Jesus was always sick. It's that he lived the life of a chronically ill person. That's what his life was like, as if he suffered from cancer from birth until his death. His whole life was characterized by grief. What's the result? Men don't even want to look at him. He's the kind of guy you don't even want to look at because it makes you uncomfortable to look at him because his life is so wretched. It's so miserable. It makes me think of walking around in downtown Houston or downtown Dallas. You're you're walking down the streets. You've got places to go, people to see, things to do. And all of a sudden you come across a a homeless person sitting there on the side of a building. Um, And and what is your natural reaction when you see this this really pitiable person? Uh, Your natural reaction is to look anywhere but there. Uh, That's the moment when you need to send that text message. Uh, It's the moment when when you look up at at the billboard that they just put up in downtown. You want to look anywhere but there because you don't want to be reminded of the pain and misery of poverty. That's Jesus. You want to look anywhere but there. You don't want to look at him. He, He looks tragic. He looks miserable. No one wants to look there. That leads the world to the conclusion of verse three. 
This is the world's assessment of Jesus. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Despised, actually the Hebrew word, it carries no emotion. This is not hatred. It's not that the world hated Jesus. Despise is the idea of just cold dismissal. The world could care less about him. The world doesn't want to even give him the time of day. They pass right on behind the subway station of life and don't even look his way. Why? Because they esteem him not. They, they regard him as having no value. The world looks at the life of Jesus and says, man, what a waste. What a loser. Why would I want to have anything to do with him? He can't even help himself. He can't even fix his own problems. He can't even remove his own suffering. Why would I want anything to do with him? When the creator and king of the universe came to walk among us, we looked at his life, we evaluated his life, and we concluded, what a loser. What a tragic, miserable, wretched loser. That's what Jesus was by appearance. Fortunately, that's not where our passage ends. Isaiah has a great surprise for us. Jesus is not who he appeared to be. Just like Joshua Bell and the D.C. metro station, there is more than meets the eye to Jesus. He's more than he appears. That's, that's where Isaiah moves next. He wants us to understand that this man that the world concludes is a tragic loser is actually exactly the opposite. He is God's successful savior of the world. He is a successful savior. He succeeds in all he does as he leads the world back to God. That's what Isaiah wants to help us understand. He begins to help us understand that by reinterpreting Jesus' sufferings. That's where he begins. Look with me at verse 4. He wants to help us understand the true nature of what Jesus suffers. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The point that Isaiah is making here is that the suffering of Jesus Christ, the, the griefs, the sorrows that he bore were not his own. Jesus suffered substitutionarily. He suffered for us. He suffered in our place. His suffering was substitutionary. Okay, that's, that's what Isaiah is trying to help us understand by repeating some key words here, griefs and sorrows. The world looks at the griefs and sorrows that Jesus experiences, and what do they conclude? Well, the last part of verse four, they conclude that, man, this guy's cursed by God. Look at what a wretched life that is. What must be under God's curse? He, he's stricken, he's smitten, he's afflicted. Jesus must be cursed. Well, is that true? Was Jesus cursed? Yeah. Actually, Jesus was cursed by God. New Testament tells us he became a curse, but not because of his sins, because of our sins. Jesus was cursed by God for us. He was cursed by God in our place. Sin always brings the curse of God. Jesus willingly became that curse for us. Isaiah drives this substitutionary idea home by repeating himself five times. Actually, five times he says the exact same thing. He says that Jesus bore our griefs and sorrows. He took our griefs, our sorrows, our pain, our suffering on himself. Then he says he was pierced for our transgressions. Pierced, that means to be uh, pierced fatally. As Jesus being put to death, he was put to death for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That word crushed, it means to, to pulverize someone. It was a word used when someone was trampled to death. That's what Jesus took. Why? For us, for our iniquities. He was chastened or, or punished for our peace. He was punished by who? Well, by God. 
This is the punishment of God. God must punish sin. He's the perfectly just judge of heaven and earth. Jesus took our punishment. Why? So that we could have peace. That's the great irony. Jesus took the place of the enemy of God. He took the punishment of God so that we could have peace. That's the Hebrew word shalom, well-being. It means to be right with God, to be at peace with God and with everyone else. Jesus took our punishment so that we could have peace. And finally, he took our scourging, our, our wounds, our tears so that we could be healed. Really interesting irony there right at the end of verse five. Jesus became wounded so that we could be healed. He took upon himself the wounds of sin, the wounds of God's wrath, so that we could become whole and complete once again. Isaiah is trying to help us understand Jesus suffered the curse of God. Yes, he did. He suffered a miserable life, but not for his sins. It was for ours. His suffering was our suffering. He never deserved it. It was not his to bear. He took it for us. Isaiah drives that point home finally with a metaphor, an image in verse six, one of the more famous verses in your Bible. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. These are the negative qualities of a sheep. They're applied to us. Isaiah's point is is we are stupid, rebellious sheep. We are sheep who have wandered away from our shepherd. We have wandered away from God. By wandering away, we have exposed ourselves to danger. We're no longer near our shepherd. Uh, We are in danger. That's what the second half of the verse looks at. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Our sin, the consequences of our sin, the death and destruction and pain we deserved, it hits Jesus rather than us. Actually, that, that translation falls on him. That's really not strong enough. In Hebrew, it's, it's active. It attacks him. Our sin, our iniquity, the pain, destruction, and death that we have earned, it attacks Jesus rather than us. Jesus steps in front of us stupid, rebellious sheep and takes the full brunt of the pain, destruction, and misery we deserve. That's what Isaiah wants us to understand. He suffered for us in our place. His suffering was substitutionary. His language is is driving us back actually to the book of Leviticus. This chapter is full of Leviticus language. It's full of the sacrificial system, especially Leviticus 16. When God laid out the regulations of the day of atonement, the one day a year where God covered over the sins of his people, that's what he wants us to look at. So uh, Leviticus 16, this is what Isaiah has in mind. On the day of atonement, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin or a guilt offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Okay, so once a year, the nation of Israel assembled in Jerusalem and it was time to cover over their sins of the whole previous year. And the ceremony begins by bringing out two goats, one that becomes the sin offering. It's slaughtered right there. It's burned before the Lord as an offering. The other becomes a scapegoat. We learn more about the scapegoat later in the chapter. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, that's the scapegoat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. This scapegoat that's chosen, the second goat is brought before the priest, and the priest lays his hands on the head of the goat and confesses over it all the people's sins, everything they've done wrong the previous year. And then they take that goat out into the desert, out into the wilderness where where it dies. It's, It's the desert. 
The idea is that goat carries on its back all of the sins of the people. It carries those sins away from the people into the wilderness where it dies the death that they deserve. That's what a scapegoat is. Isaiah's point in chapter 53 is that Jesus is both goats for us. He's both the the guilt offering and the scapegoat. He dies as a sacrifice before the Lord for our sins and he takes all of our sins upon his back and leads them out into the wilderness where he dies the death that we deserved. Jesus is our substitute. He died as a sacrifice in our place. That's the first thing that Isaiah wants us to understand about his sufferings. They were not his sufferings to endure. They were ours. He took them in our place. Second thing he wants us to understand, unlike the two goats back in Leviticus, Jesus' suffering was voluntary. The goats had no choice. They had no say in the matter. Jesus did. Look with me, verse seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Probably a better way to take that first phrase is he was oppressed and he humbled himself. Under oppression, under suffering, Jesus humbled himself. He willingly submitted to the suffering he faced. He did not resist this suffering. He he did not even complain about this suffering. Even though it was not his suffering to bear, even though it was ours, Jesus never opened his mouth in even a word of complaint. Now, I I don't know about you, but I read that verse and it's really convicting to me. So I'll I'll tell you one thing I don't do easily is suffer in silence. When I suffer, I kind of want people to know about that. I want to share that with other people so they can think about how great I am. And uh, especially when I'm suffering unjustly, when I'm suffering because somebody else made a mistake and I'm the one paying for it, then it's really hard to be quiet about it. I've at least got to tell the person who blew it. That's like my moral obligation to tell them how bad they blew it and that I'm suffering for them. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't even speak one word of complaint. Never in his whole life. He doesn't resist suffering. He doesn't complain against it. He willingly, voluntarily, joyously embraces it. Isaiah will make a similar point towards the end of the chapter. 53, 12, right in the middle of the verse, he says, because he poured out himself to death. Really interesting language. Because he poured out himself to death. Because he laid bare his life is what it's saying literally. It's picturing that Jesus is not just the sacrificial animal. He's also the priest making the sacrifice. Jesus is the one who lays himself on the altar before God. It's similar to what Jesus will say in John 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge or this authority I have received from my father. Jesus' point is, I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim in this whole deal. No, I'm the priest. I'm the one choosing to lay my life down for you. This is a voluntary sacrifice. Jesus willingly, joyously, humbly chose to sacrifice his own life, his own soul, literally in Hebrew, on the altar for us. His suffering was voluntary. His suffering was also completely undeserved. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Pause there for a second. Bit of a challenging uh, bit of uh, language there. Uh, The idea in Hebrew, I think it's an idiom for a miscarriage of justice. By a miscarriage of justice, he was led away to the cross. Without due process of law, he was led away to the cross. You you know that. You've you've studied Jesus' life. The details of his trial. There's never been more of a farce of a trial than what Jesus faced. Completely unjust in every way. And yet no one really cared about it. 
No one cared that an innocent man was about to be executed. That's the point of the rest of the verse. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His generation, that's the people standing around him, witnessing what the Romans are about to do to him. They don't consider. They don't reckon. They don't realize. They don't regard that this is an innocent man. He doesn't deserve this. They could care less. They dismiss him. They don't care that he is about to die. He cut off from the land of the living. That's just a poetic way to talk about execution. They don't care that an innocent man is about to be executed. Jesus was executed out of a great miscarriage of justice. Passage continues. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. This is actually really surprising. It's kind of shocking. Um, Jesus was a convicted criminal. So according to Roman law, he would be buried in a mass grave with the guy crucified on his left and the guy on his right. That's where Jesus should have been buried. But you read the accounts of Jesus' life, surprise, he ends up in a rich man's tomb. That was crazy. That, that was unexpected, to say the least. He is honored in death. Why is he honored in death? Because of the end of the verse. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Jesus is honored in his death. Why? Because he was perfectly innocent. These two phrases together, uh, when you combine them, done no violence, no deceit in his mouth, that's the Old Testament way of saying the guy is guiltless. The guy is completely innocent. He's never done anything wrong. There is no crime. There is no sin. There is nothing that you could level against this man. Jesus was perfect. Never sinned against anyone. Always perfect in every aspect of his life. Now, I don't know if you realize, that's, that's really important to us. It is crucial to us that Jesus was perfect. Why? Well, there was one requirement for those two goats in the Old Testament. What was that requirement? It had to be perfect. They couldn't be spotted. They couldn't be blemished in any way. God would only accept a perfect sacrifice. Jesus had to be perfect. If he committed even one sin during his entire life, then his death was for himself. He just died for his own sin. He couldn't die for us. He had to be perfect to be our sacrifice. Barna, about two years ago, did a survey of, of Americans who, who call themselves Christians. And he found that 39% of those self-identified Christians believed that Jesus sinned during his lifetime. Got to say to those folks, why bother coming to church? No reason to come here because you don't have any hope. If Jesus sinned, then his death only counts for him. You're going to die just like he did. You have no hope if he sinned. It is essential that Jesus lived a perfect life. That's the only reason we have any hope. Because he who is perfect took our place so that we don't have to face what he has faced. Not only was Jesus perfect, not only was his suffering undeserved, but Isaiah wants us to understand what his suffering accomplished. This undeserved voluntary suffering of the servant has satisfied and justified Satisfied and justified. Look with me at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The Lord was pleased to crush him. We need to understand that the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus was not an accident of history. It wasn't a tragedy of fate. It was God's will. Uh, Literally, it was God's wish. God delighted to crush him. Uh, Peter will say a similar thing, Acts chapter 2. This man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Jesus' death, well, the guilt of it is heaped upon uh, the Jewish leaders and the Romans, and yet Peter says very clearly, didn't happen by accident. 
You're not the ones who ultimately decided to put Jesus on the cross. That was God's plan. From eternity past, he chose that Jesus should go to the cross. He chose that Jesus would be crushed. He chose that. It was God's delight to punish his son. Now, not because God is sadistic, not because he delights in pain, but because he delights in his son's love and selflessness. God the Father delights that Jesus would willingly become a guilt offering for us. He became our guilt offering. That's the language again of Leviticus 16. It delights the heart of God the Father that his son willingly became the sacrifice for us. But not only is God the Father delighted by what Jesus did, but Jesus is delighted too. Verse 11, Jesus is satisfied as well. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Uh, That verse is a a little hard to wrap our minds around. I think the, the Net Bible gets the first part of it best. Here's how they translate it. Having suffered, he, that is Jesus, will reflect on his work, and he will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. What Isaiah is saying is that Jesus, after he dies and rises from the dead, he's in heaven, he looks back at his life. He looks back at all of that pain, all of that suffering, all of that misery, all of the misunderstanding of everyone around him, and he feels one thing, satisfaction. Jesus is the one and only person to look back at his life and feel absolutely no regret. He looks at every moment of his life on earth with pleasure, with satisfaction. Why? Because his life has brought justification of the many. His life, by bearing the iniquities of us, he has brought justification. We've talked about that word before, to justify It means to declare to be in the right. In the context here, it's God declaring sinners to be right with him. God declaring sinners to be righteous because Jesus carried our iniquities. That's again the language of the scapegoat. He put our iniquities on his own back and took them away from us into the wilderness where he died the death that we deserve. Because of that, God can declare us to be justified. He says that the many have been justified. Let's let's ask who are the many here? Who is it that gets to receive this justification? It's interesting, verse six, this metaphor of the sheep and how the the servant Jesus stepped in the place of the sheep and took the penalty of their sin. That's applied to all. All of us are like sheep and he's taken the iniquities of all of us. Jesus died for the sins of the entire world and yet that death is not applied to everyone. It's only applied to the many. So who are the many that get the benefits of Jesus' death? Well, Isaiah doesn't say in this chapter, but he says throughout the book as a whole. If you've been with us while we've walked through Isaiah, what is the whole reason that the book of Isaiah was written? To motivate people to trust God. That's the whole point of the book. Trust God for deliverance. Trust God to save you. That's the many. The many are those who quit trying to earn their way to God, who quit trying to please God with their merits and and fix their relationship with God through their efforts. It's the people who simply say, God, please save me a sinner. Please, God, save me. That's the many. The people who turn to God in faith, in belief. Now, the New Testament fills in more details for us. It tells us that in particular, what you are believing, what you are trusting is that Jesus died for your sins in your place and then rose from the dead. The moment that you believe that, that Jesus took your penalty, he took your punishment in your place and rose from the dead. The moment you believe that, you become part of the many. You are justified in the sight of God. He declares you right with him for all eternity. And if you're here this morning and that's new to you, you haven't wrapped your mind around that yet, I encourage you, come talk to me or someone else here this morning. 
I pray that this would be the day that you would realize you don't have to earn God's love. In fact, you can't earn it. He gives it as a free gift. He gives it as a gift to all who will simply entrust receive, who will simply say, I believe out of love, Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. That's what justification brings, brings salvation to all who will believe. Not only though does Jesus' death, not only does his suffering benefit us, it also benefits Jesus. That's the last thing that Isaiah wants us to understand. His suffering was and will be rewarded. Look with me at verse 12. Passage ends just as it began. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Those first two lines, he will allot him a portion with the great and with the strong. What Isaiah is talking about is a a complete reversal of fortunes. This man who the world chalked up to be nothing more than a loser, he will be in the final analysis honored and glorified by the entire earth. All human beings, the many and the strong, the great, everyone will share of what we have to him. We will honor him. Isaiah is saying that this one who was regarded as a loser will take first place among all of humanity. He will be the greatest human who's ever lived. We will all recognize that. He will be honored. That was actually the point back in verse 10. We skipped the second half of the verse because this is its point. Isaiah says, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's standard Old Testament language for a blessed person. Long life, see his descendants. Wait a minute though. Jesus died without any children and he died young. He died a pretty tragic death. So how can this be fulfilled for Jesus? Well, through resurrection. Through resurrection, Jesus' days are without number. They are without end. Through resurrection, Jesus has actually got the biggest family ever. He's got people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that now belong to him through faith. Jesus is the most exalted and rewarded human being who's ever lived. That was where our servant song began. 52 verse 13, it began with the exaltation of the son. The servant who the world regards as a loser will be high, lifted up, greatly exalted. He will be given the glory and honor that belong to God alone. He will be rewarded. So the world, when Jesus arrived, regarded him, looked at his life and saw nothing remarkable, saw nothing but misery, nothing but disappointment and pain, and chalked him up as a tragic loser. In reality, he was God's most successful savior, the successful savior, of all the world, bringing justice, righteousness back to earth. Well, now as we conclude this morning and as the men go back to prepare communion, I want to ask you a question. You guys can head back and get ready. Back in Jesus' day, the world totally missed the greatness of the man standing in their presence. They totally dismissed him as a loser. Totally didn't get it. I want you to ask yourself this question. Are, Are you making the same mistake today? Now, we know a lot more than they did. We know this was the son of God. He came, he died for us. He rose from the dead. He's exalted. We know those facts, but do we really appreciate them? Do do you recognize, do you live with the appreciation of who Jesus is and what he's done? Do you really appreciate that? Uh, Let me ask it this way. A few minutes ago, uh, like I do in in every sermon, I started talking about the gospel, that that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead. When I got to that point, um, did you find yourself a, a little bored? heard that a million times, did, did you start to tune out? I'll confess when, when I listen to sermons and, and the preacher gets to that part where he's presenting the gospel, I, I do that. 
I say, well, I've heard that a million times. I tune it out. I don't realize I'm making the same mistake that Jesus' contemporaries did. What is the truth of the gospel? That the king of heaven and earth who created everything willingly became a human being among us, took our sufferings upon himself, died in our place for us so that we could be saved. What's more amazing than that? The tragedy is, is that I find myself more interested in the latest insanities of Charlie Sheen than I do in the stunning reality of who Jesus is. That's just a reality of human nature. We get caught up in the appearance of things. We so often miss true greatness. So in a moment here as we celebrate communion, as we worship together, here's what I want you to consider in your mind. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. Are you living under the reality? Are you living under the appreciation that that the news that Isaiah is telling us here, the news of the gospel, is that our creator willingly chose, he had the choice, he willingly chose to come live like a loser among us to embrace all of our sufferings, all of our pain that did not belong to him, it belonged to us, and to take our punishment from God, to face the wrath of God in our place, all so that we could be justified, healed, and made well. Do you appreciate that? Do you recognize the incredible, stunning, shocking truth of that? As the men come forward and begin to pass the elements, Colin's going to lead us in worship as we celebrate with one another the glory and greatness of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, our our prayer this morning is for remembrance. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember the greatness and grace and glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Lord, for those of us who've been believers for a long time now, I, I pray, Lord, that you would joy and our awe and our surprise and shock in the gospel. I pray that you would allow Jesus to once again knock us back on our heels and amaze us. Help us to appreciate the incredible news that the creator and king and lord of heaven and earth willingly became an unattractive, cursed, suffering loser, taking our sin, our suffering, our shame upon himself dying in our place under your punishment that we deserved all so that we might be healed and made right with you thank you so much for the gift of your son thank you for his love and humility Lord we pray that we would live lives that are worthy that we would live lives that reflect the greatness and glory of Jesus and as we enter into Easter Lord we pray that we would be quick to share the good news of what Jesus has done Lord we pray please Let the good news of Jesus be on our lips, Lord. Help us to share it. Help us to be excited about it, Lord. Please, Father, help us to honor you in all that we say and all that you do because you are worthy. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray.